Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. And welcome to the latest episode of Life Beyond the Numbers. And this week, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dougal Freeman. Dougal, you're so welcome. Thank you, Susan. Lovely to be here. So when I look at your LinkedIn profile, something jumps out quite quickly, and that is a picture of you and a rhino. Would you like to explain? So growing up in Zimbabwe, we were taught or got heavily involved in conservation. And I've always been interested, particularly uh, conservation in Africa, and had the opportunity to go on the board of the fundraising arm of Old Pegeta. And that picture was, in fact, one of the last two northern white rhinos. And the photograph was taken by a lady called Amy Vitali. I have to say, the keeper was off shot, and it was quite nerve-wracking as he said, keep talking to me because they hear his voice and they get relaxed so you can probably see if you look close up I was a little anxious it's obviously quite big in one swish of the head and I probably would have been knocked but I was out with a recent visit with my brother who farms on the slopes of Mount Kenya he grows roses I took the opportunity to go around and meet some of the team and obviously see the last two northern white rhinos it was an opportunity not to be missed but also to go and spend the night on Old Pegeta which is a fabulous place to stay and what is Old Pegida? It was previously a, a cattle ranch and some donors took it over to make it into a conservancy for particularly rhinoceroses and chimpanzees. And I think it has probably one of the largest population of black rhino in East Africa. And it's been very, very successful. It's very successful with anti-poaching. Obviously, it's had a couple of challenges with the lack of tourism for covid but it's, I guess, one of the success stories of, um, you know, wildlife improvement and enhancement in East Africa at the moment. They pay particular attention to working closely with the local community to make sure that there's a benefit of wildlife rather than just wealthy tourists come in and come out to see what's going on. How are they working with the local community to make sure it's not just wealthy they tourists will, coming in and out? For example, it's very dry at the moment and they are in talks with uh, providing limited access to grazing for some villages cattle obviously there's jobs that some of the people depend on they have a an integrated operation on part of the place where they still ranch cattle and slaughter it and sell beef to the local market they will then buy animals from the surrounding villages so there's sort of access to the supply chain piece and i think the success of this kind of operation uh, will be about working closely with the people in whose uh, community in which you live. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me, you mentioned at the beginning that there were the last two remaining white rhinos in the world. Yeah, Northern. Northern white rhinos. And there's a programme at the moment to, I believe the embryos have been extracted. I'm not quite sure the technical details, but they're trying to implant those into white rhinos to to bring the population back from the brink. Wow. Um, it, information can easily be found on Google, you know, or Pegeta. Uh, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. So you live in the UK, Zuko, but you mentioned you grew up in Zimbabwe. So yeah, I was born in Zimbabwe, did all of my school there. I went to St. George's College, where a very long-standing Jesuit college there. And then after that, started to drift into thinking about what I wanted to do. So there was holiday jobs with my father, who was in Malawi at that stage, starting to work on what was the old paper-based accounting system. And 
I remember many of my holidays was involved in extracting the accounting balances from what many of you might know as the ledger or the general ledger, which and for others, a very, very large book uh, full of the different accounting balances. And you mean a paper book? A paper book to make sh- sitting there with a calculator, <laughs> making sure all the debits and credits balanced. So going through like a paper file or paper files with a calculator and how many transactions are you talking about? It was a mechanical book where you added extra pages and I think it was about 500 pages and with probably seven or 800 ledger accounts and all numbered, all briefly numbered and it had to be extracted for the auditors. And it was when... The accounts were then prepared by hand. The last stage was then typed up for the auditors to all the audit schedules and everything was all handwritten. So he, at that stage, he was working on a sort of group of tobacco funds in Malawi. And I guess an early sort of dip into the agricultural world. Mm, and actually funny that you say that, because as I looked through your profile on LinkedIn, two main themes jumped out at me. Now, I think there's lots of themes, but two main themes throughout your career. And I think that's agriculture and accounting seem to be kind of intertwined and also working between the for-profit world and not-for-profit world. So you've talked a little bit about what drew you, I suppose, perhaps to agriculture and accounting. Was that it? Was was it working with your dad in Malawi that sparked an interest? No, I I, um, was starting to study for my management accounting qualification and uh, I left to the UK and uh, got a job with an agricultural management consulting firm based in Bath, where they were doing lots of interesting project work in Africa. And I was still, at that stage, building up my uh, bookkeeping experience with the purchase ledger clerk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And started working there for a bit. I got made redundant. And somebody suggested, why didn't I go to university? And as a mature student who'd been in the UK, Somebody suggested White College, and I was interested in a BSc in Agricultural Business Management, and Y has a, or had, still has an excellent global reputation. So, went off to Y down in Kent, it's now part of Imperial College, to do a BSc in Agribusiness Management, but also kept my foot in the accounting door, funding my studies and the odd trip home back to Malawi via working at a local firm of chartered accountants in Bath. It was quite funny being a mature student at 23, and I was the old guy at the end of the corridor, <laughs> sort of five years older than everybody else. I was getting itchy feet at the end of that and wanted to get back to Africa. So wrote to, as far as I know at the time, every single company that had direct interests in agribusiness in Africa and ended up... Every single company where? Well, listed on the stock exchange. I recall probably writing about 22 letters, but these were done on an old electric typewriter. You had to book time at university to use the printers and the computers, and it was quite a challenge. And I felt that, you know, writing an important letter, it should be done on a typewriter or by hand rather than on the old dot matrix printer. And they hadn't had the laser printers then. So I was fortunate enough to literally, I understand the timing of my letter at an office in London of the company I went to work for, the individual whose job I took had resigned and our letters crossed on the desk the same day and went out to work in a place called Cholo in Malawi, the tea growing area, as the assistant general manager responsible for finance, procurement, logistics, on a 22,000 acre tea, coffee and macadamia operation, all of it for export pretty much. So had you done your accountancy qualification? No, I was still, I was about halfway through. Mm and went out uh, on quite a low level of pay and thought I'd prove myself. The company was keen that I continue to study and continue to proceed through SEMA, Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. At that stage, you had to write all four exams and pass all four in one go to move on. And so I did fail a tax paper and had to resit the whole stage. But I went out, proved myself and got pay increases. But... You know, I cut my teeth there. It was part of the list of UK PLC. So we had quite a heavy emphasis on compliance and reporting figures in to meet 
stock exchange requirements for the group. But at the same time, for example, the, the payroll uh, was done manually and we had 9,000 people in the sort of busy season. Whoa. Uh, everybody was paid weekly. And you had a payroll team of about 30 uh, who were doing paper-based calculations. A payroll team of 30 people? Yeah. This all then had to be calculated, sent into the bank, the cash, because everybody was paying cash, had to come back with security, and then teams would be sent out on payday. And some of the workers uh, could only have put a thumbprint because many people were illiterate. And you had to watch out for things like, you know, the same thumbprint turning up when you pay <laughs> slips because people would pay villagers to come in and just put the thumbprints down for ghost workers. But if you wanted the payroll to get done, you had to learn to chivvy the team along and understand any hiccups or pick up any issues from a particular part of the estate where the pay might be delayed or slow. And then, of course, it was all task-based, so you had to make sure that you weren't being scammed by people putting rocks in the green leaf bags. Or, um, uh, you know, one common problem was uh, a woman would be given extra kilograms of coffee cherry picked if they'd had sex with the manager. Oh, Jesus. So sort of fraud and control and control environments. It was my early sort of baptism by fire. I do recall we were building some staff housing and we had to put security on after the had put wet cement and new bricks down because if you weren't careful, you would suddenly find there would be a new house going up in the village and all of your freshly laid walls would have been stolen. Uh, the same would happen with a, a, you know, a newly sprouted field of maize. If the plants were maybe two or three inches high, you drove past at lunchtime and you drove back and the whole lot would have gone. And it would have been transplanted throughout the village. So getting a, a, a feel for control environments, what may or may not happen, getting a sense for, you know, looking beyond the numbers to, to see where and how things could be managed. It was a real baptism by fire. But an immensely enjoyable part, I did, to my surprise, end up uh, working very close to where my grandfather was working in the 30s. Really? Who, he'd been out looking for areas to grow tobacco and had been involved in planting some tea, probably, probably a couple of miles from my house back in the 30s. And I believe those same tea bushes are still growing. Tea is quite a resilient plant if you look after it. So it was a good first step into the sort of agricultural world. But looking clearly at how numbers, money and cash can sort of wash through quite a big enterprise at the time. Amazing. That's like a fascinating story. And I, I just can't even imagine the volume of well transactions but also just like the space what did you say twenty two thousand acres acres so what is that like could you see the whole estate from where you were no you you had to drive around it'll probably take you a day to to drive around it was most of it was contiguous but there were some blocks that were owned that were separate so you would go off to other blocks you had to have radios with you and, you know, just another example, we had to feed everybody every day. I was responsible for buying uh, the maize and the beans. And in the main season, we'd go through about a ton and a half of sugar because everybody wanted sugar in their tea, probably about every two or three weeks. Whoa. <laughs> so it really was a, at scale operation. At scale. And you, you, you had to protect or mitigate, you know, potential loss with pretty much everything used, fertilizer, beans, maize, tea, Sugar. Diesel, sugar. Wow. You moved to the UK or to Europe at one point, but you kept a foothold in Africa, I believe? So after the tier state, I came back to the UK to sort of think about what to do next. And was really interested at, at seeing how the smallholder leaf growers were integrated on the boundary of the estate into the main sort of commercial agriculture because it's the only way they could... could you know, probably maintain their livelihoods. So many tier states used to buy green leaf from the smallholders. So really, having been to Y, it was an obvious choice to go to Reading. So I did an MSc in Agricultural Development Economics at Reading, and that was sort of at the start of all, probably me dipping into some sort of NGO work to pay the bills, 
I did a spell with the American Refugee Committee in Kosovo, and another spell in Rwanda, and this was more about helping sort out finances, financial control systems, setting up teams. But the extra piece to that was dealing with a completely different range of sort of ethnicity and uh, people issues, in particular in Kosovo. It was at the time, just after the war there in the Balkans, and, you know, the security team from the American Refugee Committee insisted we have RPG screens on the windows because we had Serbians, Albanians, Kosovars all working, and the tension sometimes in the office was palpable. And getting things done, you, you had to start to think about how to keep people in on a common goal despite some of the rivalry or politics, politics suppose, that, yeah. people, uh, that people brought with them to the office. Yeah. Rwanda was quite a while after genocide and the pieces I remember distinctly are the children and adults who had injuries. Uh, people's ears had been chopped off or maybe somebody still had a machete in their head. I was only there for, for about, a, about two weeks, three weeks, and uh, that, that was quite a tough sort of assignment. Having been to Rwanda myself in oh, 2003, I think it was, which was less than 10 years since the genocide, there was something so, there was such a heavy atmosphere. And yes, I can imagine. Yeah, very heavy. It was, it was quite, quite, it'll stick in my mind for a long time. Yeah. So my brother was working in Kenya. He was doing horticulture university with a sort of mixed agricultural farm in Mount Kenya. I started getting an advisory role there to help them set up their finance system, make sure they could report properly, look at controls, look at the finance team, and, you know, family-run business. Again, completely different challenges to deal with when you've got family involved who are shareholders and employees. So I started that. It, it, it dovetailed very nicely into being able to stay with my brother and enjoy some of the fantastic scenery that is East Africa. And I would go out, stay with my brother, get stuck into their finance system. So, so again, kept a, a toehold in, in Africa as I was starting to think and consider other options. And, I mean, this farm, what was going on there? Wheat and barley. Mm-hmm. I think they're one of Kenya's biggest malting barley growers. And what's really critical is the nitrogen content of malting barley so you can make good lager beer. Years ago, when I believe one of the founding family members set it up, they obviously still had sheep. They used to do sheep for wool, but that market went out quite a while ago. And uh, timber, they were moving into flowers with my my brother was driving that project. The other interesting project that they had going for me, which I, I thought was really impressive, was they were getting women to grow on the boundary again to grow fresh peas. These would be steamed and bagged on the farm and then sold them to markets in Nairobi. So a bit of value adding, but again, you know, a large landowner in a geopolitically quite sensitive area, water scarce, integrating smallholders and villages on their boundary into the agricultural supply system, which without such access and scale would have been a challenge for some people. And I think the the owners at the time were realising they had to think about returns to water, um, water use, returns to land use. So having sort of large-scale livestock and sheep perhaps is not the most appropriate, and you could employ more people, certainly in, in horticulture. So the roses and the greenhouses, you know, numbers of staff uh, increase, and then looking at how you can get the people, your neighbours, involved in what you do. Mm, mm. So one of the things that started to crystallise in my mind based on my Malawi experience, and then obviously going to look at a straightforward arable agriculture operation, you, you can potentially see if you, if you get your control environment wrong, you can see the impact straight away. For example, on a wheat field, if somebody's stolen 50% of the fertilizer, the application rate's gone down, but within months, you can see the impact of the low growth 
obviously all the yields will drop and you can see it straight away. And the other piece that, you know, where you can see value destruction in the business, if you think of horticultural operations, much of the value of that is vested in the management team. And in what way, Dougal? Because if you, and I you know, I know quite a bit about roses, if you neglect roses, it's a 365-day-a-year operation. They, the quality and value deteriorates very, very quickly. And it will take you time and money to get the quality back up, the number of stems per hectare back up. So a business that may be generating 5 to $6 million a year with X number of stems can very quickly, the yields will drop if you neglect it, you don't spray properly or the agrochemicals have been stolen or the personal protective equipment has been stolen or the water pipes. If you neglect your controls and your monitoring and something will happen every single day, whether it's harvesting, spraying cycles, and you leave it for a couple of weeks, you, you will run into problems that you will see coming through in the numbers, yield loss, quality loss, and it's difficult to recover. And is it difficult to get the right management in place? I'm just thinking about, like, if we compare it to an, any other organisation that isn't doing products, like a lot of us would have worked in, in the kind of knowledge working, and obviously management has a, a huge role to play there as well. So I guess it's the same in any business. The senior management, the the team need to really care about what they do. Yeah, I think it's the same in any business. If you are the team, need to really care about what they do. And if you have a, a horticultural and agribusiness at scale and you're prepared to accept a slightly lower or, or less of a return overall in your commercial business cycle, then you'll accept that some theft happens, you'll accept that things go wrong. But actually, if you really want to you know, optimize your business. It's all about the team. It's all about the people. And if you have got people, and this is, you know, this is based on my experience in, in Eastern South Africa. If you've got people who are really good at what they do, well rewarded and well remunerated and understand, and there's a bit more of a worker management relationship, then value and output can be maintained, whether you're farming wheat or whether you're growing roses or blueberries, ultimately, I think your returns will be better because you won't have control issues or you'll have fewer of them. I'm not saying that you'll never get on top of everything. You'll have fewer control problems. You'll have fewer theft issues. You'll have fewer leakage if it's wheat flour. And it will be reflected in the value of your business. Wow. Cool. And... That's really interesting. And I sometimes I think forget about other industries other than some of the places I've worked myself, which is mainly about getting people to do, you know, very paper based work as opposed to often growing things. So the other side of the coin, and we've talked a little bit, we've talked a lot actually about agriculture and accounting and also I think the for profit world. And we start to dip into the not-for-profit world or humanitarian work. And I can see that you've worked in Mine Action. You've been in a number of the world's hotspots. You've worked in nutrition, a wide range of different organisations. And so I'm curious, what was it like to be in Jordan in, at the beginning of the Second Gulf War? So it's quite a bit like a slow motion train wreck because you could sit in Jordan at night having a beer in the only pub you were allowed into as a non-Muslim, uh, watching CNN and Al Jazeera and watch the build-up of the of troops and soldiers. Yet you were sitting in a what appeared to be on the face of it quite an English pub having a beer but people were leaving flights were reducing and certainly on my last flight into Amman there were three people on the flight and the air crew were not staying the night that night they were dropping people off literally and flying back out to Amsterdam 
So what what were you doing there? So I was the original financial controller for Ken. At that stage, the group of officers, which I was responsible for, Iraq, Jordan, and Yemen, we were doing primarily humanitarian programming, but some development work, particularly in Jordan and Yemen. Uh, we reported into Care Australia, so I was there to look after look after the money for a what turned out to be an eighteen month old contract. It was some straightforward. You had a, a program or contract. We had to deliver activity, whether it was um, teaching people about grey water reuse in Jordan. I think it's a very, very water scarce area to making sure water networks, water pipes in Iraq were the leaks were repaired and things were functioning. Um, certainly before the war started, we had a big challenge getting money into for the Iraq office because of the severe penalties Saddam Hussein put on uh, people uh, changing money illegally. So we used the Hawala system to get money into. Uh, and what explain what the Hawala system is? It's a system of trust where you make a payment to somebody and they will deliver money to where you wanted to go. And we never had a problem ever. You would pay money to a bank in Dubai or a bank in the UK or a bank in Malaysia, and the money would turn up in the office in Baghdad at the appropriate time with the appropriate security arrangements in full. There's a fee on it, but it was certainly a, an amazing way to transfer money. And we're talking about like large sums of money. Up to upwards of a million dollars. Yeah. American. Yeah. So during the time there, obviously it shifted into a sort of humanitarian response phase. And I was fortunate enough to go into visit the Baghdad office. And that was an incredibly well-established office with 400 staff, a great system from a financial perspective and controls approvals, vouchers. It short was paper-based, but actually it was pretty well run. I know many commentators say about leakage or aid, things in, you know, from my experience, this is far from the case. Money was well spent, money was spent correctly, and there was impact. And it was plain to be seen. One of the biggest challenges I had was we're putting a new finance system in, we had to sort of recreate a set of books for uh, on books and accounts for Care Australia. We managed to do it on time, but it was a real challenge because I had a team of uh, ethnic, multi-religious, multi-gendered, and there was a whole lot of political, religious, gender-based issues and challenges between the team. And clearly people didn't like each other because of religion. They didn't like women members of the team or they didn't like the Kenyan members or the Bangladeshi members didn't like the Jordanians and it was a real challenge and I had to continually and persistently remind people that we were all working for care that we had a common goal some of them were working for care because it was just a job some of them chose to work for care because they liked the organisation but we had but persistently and continually reminding people that we needed to achieve this. It was important to sit and listen to people sometimes and let them vent their frustrations. And if they were being insulting, rude to other members of the team, you had to steer them back, but being cognizant of any religious issues or ethnicity issues or gender issues. And, and the team ranged from a fantastic old gentleman who had done his chartered accounting training under the old UK Arab board to a very, very super smart Yemeni lady who was training under ACCA. And then a whole host of individuals in between. And my big learning there was you really need to sit and understand the people in the team and what's behind things if you want to get stuff done. It's not about just putting extra fertilizer on a wheat crop. You have to really work with and immerse yourself in some of the, the challenges that may be petty on the face of it, but actually mean something to people. Absolutely. And I, I'm just thinking like you're talking about people from many different countries there as well. And so what language do people speak in? And, and like with some of the things going on in, in language that you couldn't understand, for example? Yeah, the language of the office was English. However, 
I'm pretty sure, although my Arabic is non-existent or very little, I know very little that people were insulting other people in Arabic. They may have been insulting or discussing people in Swahili. So there was definitely a sort of undercurrent if there were issues on days there were where things were going on and people were exclaiming in their own language and we just had a sense of something wasn't quite right. Hmm. And you said you were there, I think, 18 months, Dougal. So clearly during that time, the conflict in Iraq escalated. Yeah, it started to get worse. And I worked very closely with a lady called Margaret Hassan, who unfortunately was murdered sort of post my departure from Iraq. But Margaret was very conscientious. I talked earlier about the control issues. And I remember... She was an Irish lady, wasn't she, Margaret? That's right. Yeah. She was a teacher. She had a very, very, very good reputation. And when the office would take us out for lunch, you would walk into somewhere and the team you were with would say to some of the security staff at the restaurant, he works with Margaret. And that was enough to get you into a restaurant to have lunch because she was widely respected. I remember one note of apology where one of the buildings where she used to fax the accounts through to meet her deadlines got hit by an American missile and she apologised for the delay because she had to go elsewhere, but she, her main aim was to get the accounts for one time. But un- unfortunately, having narrowly escaped the bombing of the Canal Hotel, I'd left there about 30 minutes before, uh, the UN hotel, which got blown up by a truck bomb where the Sergio de Mello was killed. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think 22, 22 people were killed in total. I'd been sitting in the internet cafe writing emails to friends and family saying I'm stuck in the Canal Hotel. And they ran through saying that my name was on the passenger list. Could I please go to the convoy? And was dropped everything and ran. And we headed out to the airport and boarded the plane and didn't understand why my mobile phone went into meltdown in Jordan. Hadn't known it. I was in a bit of shock when obviously other people I had meetings with and some of the people I saw had died. And it was, yeah, quite a, a surreal moment. So basically you had left that hotel 30 yeah. minutes before the bomb hit. Yes. And then you're on a plane um, with um, people trying to reach you thinking you're in the hotel. Yeah. <gasps> um, we were on a plane. I think it was five people on the plane, you know, drinking a cold beer, thinking, left Baghdad, that's great because it's really hot not a care in the world at that stage. So it was a real a real shock, and I, I think it took me a long time to, to, to process that on reflection. And also, you mentioned that your boss, Margaret, had been murdered. Yeah, so, so having left after the Canal Hotel, I was still based at Jordan for a bit, and then it, there were threats made against the office, and CARE had a very good security team, and we were told we could no longer go to back out, and then... Unfortunately, Mara Margaret got kidnapped and the word was that it must have been uh, you know, somebody from outside Baghdad because of her reputation. And unfortunately, some months later in November, discovered she'd been murdered. I remember that. I remember that story from way back when. So, gosh, I mean, <laughs> working in an office in Oxford sounds very very safe and maybe quite boring in comparison to some of that work but but before we get to what you do now I'd also like to like talk to you about mine action because I spent a lot of time in mine action myself as you know and worked for mag the mines advisory group prior to you working there and mine action I suppose Working in that sector is something that has stayed with me for many years. And we've, we've talked about this before, but it's about seeing the impact of, of the work. Yeah, I, I immensely enjoyed the field visits because you could sit, for example, and have a drink of tea with a Vietnamese rice farmer who was getting his land back. And I don't speak Vietnamese at all, but the, the elation and the relief of being able to go and dig your fields is probable. We even send your kids to school through a track across the field, you know, knowing that they won't be hurt or injured potentially. That that was a real buzz. And you know, equally the, the dedicated staff who worked 
for Mike. Um, he, you know, if he was sitting trying to work out some problems with a payroll maybe in Angola, or you were trying to, you know, train some local staff in Beirut on a new system, it was, I really enjoyed the understanding and dealing with colleagues who English, you know, maybe their third language or fourth language. But when you get a feel for people and you you can try and empower and push them, you can get some great results from them. And the the impact of MAG is very binary. Land is cleared, hospitals are built, roads are demined, stuff can happen. Although I nearly you know didn't quite make it as I was late for my interview. Um, <laughs> first time I've ever been late for an interview. And I did offer, I said at the senior level, uh, to be late is not acceptable. So I off to walk away and so I didn't. So I did a an 18 month spell there, but it was it was fantastic. I I remember being in the valley in Vietnam where we were going to a big demolition of some Mark II 750 pound bombs and other that had been that had been dropped by the Americans and had been recovered. Demolitions were very ordered and done in a, a controlled way. So areas were cleared, they were put in a pit. There was a particular site at which many of these bombs would be disposed of. We were hiding, we were told to stay behind a blast wall about a kilometre away when the demolition went off and you could hear the fragments of effectively hot cast iron was passed you. And I actually have a pair of cufflinks from the, uh, one of the fragments that I collected just it's a sort of sober reminder of the damage. the damage in what's gone on. And I can remember sitting there thinking, gosh, this is only two bombs. Can you imagine if day after day, hundreds of bombs? And it, it was... And designed to explode <clears throat> like that with fragments going out of them. Yeah. And having witnessed a demolition myself in, in Cambodia, I was in... It is quite surreal, the sound, the, the cloud of smoke, everything that goes around it. And the, the, the danger that people working in mine action face every day and the work they do to, to make the world a safer place is quite phenomenal. Indeed, it's, it's one of the, interestingly, I think you have more chance of being injured on a building site in the UK than working in mine action because the processes and controls for working in a field are so tight and obviously you have to follow them. So although I might be a senior member of staff, if we were out on a field visit, you were under control of the technical operations manager and you had to follow absolutely everything. Otherwise, catastrophic failure could mean death. And it's, it's, it's a powerful field to work in because there's very clear impacts, but if things go wrong, obviously it can impact the, the staff the wrong way. But yet, you know, to see many of the children or, or people who've lost legs or limbs, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite devastating. Mm. Mm. I'm, I've got all these stories going through my head of my time in, in mine action as well. And it's a great reminder of how, I suppose that there are still many dangers lurking out there and that people are doing amazing work in the nonprofit world. And it often gets poo-pooed. I can remember being one time being back in Ireland and somebody asking me, well, what do you do as a, you know, you're, you're an accountant. Are you giving out food on the side of the road? And me thinking, oh, my God, you know, every penny has to be accounted for. This is real work with real people, real lives. But before I go on a rant, which I can feel is coming on, maybe in, from your perspective, Dougal, you've worked across the nonprofit sector and for-profit world. So you've been immersed in both and still are. What are the main differences or challenges to work across both of those? I think some of the challenges are similar, certainly if you have a broad geographic spread of countries, whether it's Africa or the Middle East, you get hit with trying to do your consolidation to report into the, the group for the stock exchange or to report to the donors. And actually, 
there's a power cuts or the finance officer in Angola can't get through because the, the road's flooded and you've got to wait. So you can get some similar challenges. It doesn't matter whether it's for profit or not for profit. The other piece I think that I think the not-for-profit world is perhaps less forgiving. You cannot put your prices up. It's like running a business in a low-margin environment. There's very little room for error. And sometimes you don't have a balance sheet with a lot of reserves on. So if there's mistakes are made, the, the business can, or the, the organization could go under quite quickly. So it requires, I mean, both, both sectors, you need to have time management. Both you need to have good internal controls. You need to have robust systems. You also, in the not-for-profit sector, you need to think actually that you're spending effectively your own money because you're a taxpayer and much of development assistance is taxpayer-funded. Of course, there are the philanthropists like the Belinda Gates Foundation and others, but ultimately, at the end of the day, much development work or humanitarian work is taxpayer-funded and it's got to be spent well. And it's a real challenge to get everything lined up to make sure that the actions, outputs and outcomes are delivered in line with the funding proposal to meet the donor requirements. It's a little bit easier, in my view, in a for-profit because actually you've got to stick to almost one set of financial reporting guidelines. UK it's FRS 102. Um, and if you're doing a set of statutory accounts, say in Kenya, it's international financial reporting standards. But a not-for-profit, you've got the donor accounting requirements. You have the statutory pieces of the charity or the entity through which you're doing it. And then obviously the parent entity. And squaring those three up is often quite a challenge because you may find that you're compliant with your donor or client, but actually you need to change something to uh, report under UK charity. It doesn't matter where you work, you still have to you know, make sure you've got the right team doing the right thing. And you've got to be conscious of the, the other side, the anti-corruption, the fraud and bribery, the safeguarding. There's all of the other pieces that will, will have an impact on your overall control environment, which for me then flows into what happens with the money and how you account for things. And if you get all of that right, you can run quite a sort of tight ship, as it were. But it's no good just focusing on the finance because there's all the extras that happen whether it's procurement, whether it's HR matters and how people are employed, and, and, you know, any underlying ethnicity, cultural issues within an office that you need to understand to make sure that you can deliver what you're setting out to do. Mm. So sometimes I think the challenges in both sectors are the same, and certainly it's in, in particular game where growth and impact is, is the business, the organizations have been very successful at doing stuff, but often people neglect the back office. And whether it's technically correct group consolidations or making sure that, you know, a set of accounts are prepared under Swiss, Swiss gap, you can end up with quite a, a mess if you don't get your basic accounting and controls right. And again, was a particular challenge. Done some really fantastic stuff over the years, but like many places, the finance has been neglected. And actually, Susan, uh, I, I recall you had reconciled 13 years of accounts just to make sure that actually we, we had a platform for which to build and develop the changes. Yeah, I think that was, it was one of my career highlights, actually, was doing that piece of work. And I used to carry around this red folder, if you remember, Dougal. I remember well. <laughs> with all going back, because we couldn't determine the split between restricted income and unrestricted income in 100% certainty. And we also were not sure whether or not there had ever been any fraud. That's and right. to do that, we had to unravel every single piece of income that had come in and gone out of the organization back over 13 years. It took me months and months to do it. And it ended up with a number of adjustments to the accounts, if I recall correctly. Right. Thanks for the reminder of that. <laughs> the, the I think the you know the evidence that I was going in the right direction was the support provided by the Gates Foundation to continue with the systems and process and control changes, and they provided substantial monetary support for for me to do that while the organisation was in a period of transition. 
Gates did. Gates did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was a lot of I had a lot of uh, communication collaboration with the Gates Foundation, the big funders of game, and they were keen that we put the organisation on a firm footing. And I think the evidence is there today that it's grown, and you know, game is continuing to do the good things. Absolutely. And the basics were put in, in place again. And just so everybody knows what, what GAIN is, perhaps you'd just say what the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition was, was all about. A couple of the key things, really. One was a large-scale food fortification, putting folic acid and, uh, and vitamins into flour, uh, bread flour primarily, and cooking oil. And the other piece was around touching on salt iodization. Uh, in particular, dealing with the challenges of, of salt consumption versus making sure your iodine consumption is correct. And then, of course, monitoring and evaluating the impacts of what these actions were, the, the large-scale fortification was, was doing. And the other piece I think I, I you know, was really delighted to be involved in is the spin-out of the Access to Nutrition Index, which is a standalone entity on its own right now. And I encourage you to look it up on Google and see what good work it does. And that was great being involved with that. I was able to turn my hand at some fascinating negotiations with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the Netherlands. We had a 22 partner, public-private partnership put together around looking at value chains and vegetables across East Africa. And this was everybody from Unilever through to a small Tanzanian NGO involved in producing vegetable seeds. And so that was a real challenge, but quite a challenging program to implement and deliver. But being involved right at the outset in the commercials and the legals was, was a real fascinating way of seeing how development, not for profits, and for-profit companies and organisations can be brought together to deliver something. Of value. Of value. And as a senior finance leader because you've done a number of senior finance roles in the last, whatever, 15, 20 years, what would be maybe a bugbear or a frustration for you at times? I guess just be referred to as the finance guy or the numbers person, because actually there's so much more based on my breadth and depth of experience. I think it's more than just the numbers. It's definitely life beyond the numbers we've been talking about here today. Absolutely. That's probably the biggest one. And then the other one is obviously it's in the not-for-profit side, people really not understanding the sector, what people are trying to do and how people spend money, whether you're in conservation, whether you're in humanitarian work or the development side of things. Mm. I suppose we tend to write, there's a bad story or a bad publicity about something and we, we colour the whole sector with that rather mm. than looking at individual organizations based on their merit and their deliverables. Yeah, I think it's very true. Yeah, which is a shame. And we've talked a lot about teams and people here as well. And I just wonder, looking back at your career now and in all the countries you've worked in and all the different cultures and gender norms and whatever it is, what is maybe something that you're really proud of that you achieved with people? God, that's a, that's a challenging question to answer. I'm, I'm probably the biggest piece is watching a number of colleagues who I've hired, who I've worked with, imparted knowledge to go on to do, to have really successful careers, who have all said they've enjoyed working with me, felt empowered, supported, encouraged and this is men and women uh, in all many different countries to see them really move on when they're ready to move on but knowing that actually they've got something out of working for me and it's not about me per se it's about the impact on other people giving people a chance and a break lovely <laughs> of course Putting people first is one of the things I talk about, and, and that's music to my ears, as you know. So look, Dougal, I mean, we've absolutely run out of time here, but I know that you're currently the CFO of an organisation called Oxford Policy Management, and you're part of what history might call the Great Resignation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So having joined Oxford Policy Management in 2018, the recent sort of job was around resetting the team there, a complete a sort of restructure and rebuild of the finance systems, 
I've achieved all the sort of goals I've set myself. We've recently had a year end where the, the business is in great shape, a decent profit levels have been returned to. There's a decent pile of cash in the bank and it's time for me to move on to, to another challenge. And I'm sure many CFOs or finance professionals out there will understand it's, it's a good time to leave after a decent year end. So I took the plunge and popped the reservation in. And so I'm currently carefully considering my next challenge. Not really sure whether it's going to be for profit or not for profit, but looking for something that excites and interests me and where I can get involved, particularly on the people side of things and bring my skill and experience to bear to prove and shape whichever organisation I join for. So. <laughs> Sounds like you're in a job interview here with me now, but that's really interesting because you, you've you left without another job to go to and are, are there certain sectors that you're more interested in? And when you say a challenge, I'm assuming you don't want to end up in a war zone again or anything like that. Yeah, I, I don't want to end up in a war zone again. I still like the sort of development sector. I'm obviously interested in sort of these, you know, conservation, sustainability, supply chain related. I have a burgeoning interest in sort of renewable power and renewable energy and how that's being rolled out in particularly places like East Africa. So, so you're having a good look. I'm having a good look. I want to make a careful choice about where I go next. I'm not in a rush and always happy to chat to people Fantastic. Look, I that I that wow, there's so much in that. An amazing career so far, Dougal, and wishing you absolutely the best with whoever is lucky enough to to work with you going forward. But if anyone would like to connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? Reach out on LinkedIn, drop me a message there. I'm always happy to have a coffee or chat with people, even if it's junior finance professionals who want a bit of help and advice delighted to talk to people the more people you talk to the better you can always learn something and you never stop learning oh absolutely i agree with you and i certainly learned from you here today as well thank you so much for your time Dougal. it's a pleasure and i'm sure we'll speak again i'm sure we will Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.